Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of Second Peter, and particularly right now of the various matters in verse 5 of chapter 1, in which we are to grow. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is the theme of this letter. And rather than run over all these speed bumps at once and uh, not get the benefit from, of each of them, we are, uh, we've slowed down on verse 5 to look first at faith, then virtue, and today knowledge, the growth in knowledge for Christ's sake. But I would like to read to you again, starting in verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 1, and give attention now to the word of the Lord. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that by such knowledge, once again, that you would build up your people. All things in life and godliness have been given to us through the knowledge of him who called us, and that by these things you have promised that we should neither be unproductive nor ineffective in our Christian lives. So we pray, teach us what we need to know. Give us an understanding of you and your ways. Seal the knowledge of God to the hearts and the minds of your people, that walking accordingly, we may live to your glory through Christ our Lord. Amen. Don't know much about history, don't know much theology. The most recent State of Theology survey by Ligonier and Lifeway came out this week, a rather large survey of Christian beliefs in the United States. If you want some depressing reading, you can pick it up. The 24-page report reminds us that American Christians are a very confused bunch on a number of matters. Um, most, for instance, uh, say that God wrote the Bible, but they're not sure that everything in it is true. Six in ten say that everyone goes to heaven, but only five in ten say that, uh, sorry, but five in ten say that only those who believe in Jesus 
will be saved. Did you get that? I think I missed that up here. Six in ten say everyone goes to heaven. Five in ten say only those who believe in Jesus will. I think Americans are struggling with logic or math as well as theology. Uh, while seven in ten say there's only one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a full three-quarters of evangelicals agree that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And you know, the last time something like that happened, they had to call a worldwide church council at Nicaea to settle the truth once and for all, or so they thought. Our day is a day of confusion, one in which experience and feeling have taken the place of knowledge and truth. Not that it should be either or. As you know, God's word certainly does not advocate an emotionless Christianity, and I'll be speaking about that again tonight. It should not be one or the other, though. And our emotions are very unreliable guides to truth. Jonathan Edwards' father-in-law, Solomon Stoddard himself, came to the assurance of his salvation while he was presiding at the Lord's table. And I think understandably, he came to think of the Lord's Supper as a mean of, means of bringing people to faith in Christ, rather than as his son-in-law would rather correctly argue, a meal appropriate to those who were already Christians. But you see, uh, emotions are not a good judge sometimes of truth. Or another example, many Christians were converted in a revival service. Yet sometimes they expect everyone to have had exactly the same sudden and dramatic experience of coming to faith in a crisis as they had. In fact, they are suspicious of some of you people here, like my dear wife, for instance, who were raised in believing homes and cannot point to a time when she came from darkness to light. The point is, though, that the Bible, from beginning to end, reminds us it's not a particular experience of conversion that proves that we have truly believed in, in Christ. It's the fact that we believe in him that counts, that cuts the mustard. Uh, it must have been something like this in Luther's day that led him to pray, God, give us the experience of being freed from experience. <laughs> in his first letter to the Corinthians, similarly, Paul talked about the misuse of speaking in tongues. Obviously, a a gift that bequeathed powerful experiences, spiritual experiences on a people who, in using it, he said, were being selfish, proud, arrogant, and indifferent to their brethren. And Paul said, you know, it is better in church to speak five words of instruction to edify somebody than 10,000 words that only create a terrific experience. The kingdom of Israel was in decline and about to fall under God's judgment when the Lord sent the prophet Hosea to call them back, saying, my people are being destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And experience is no substitute for knowledge. Emotion is no substitute for truth. The prophecy did not imply that Israel had been deprived of the opportunity for knowledge. The prophecy described an ignorance that was the result of ignoring God, frankly, and that was a fatal ignorance. 
for the lack of knowledge, they would be destroyed. The prophet Hosea urges them, saying, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain on the earth. That is our subject today. No matter how much we have ignored the knowledge of God, we are being called to know him, to pursue. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. We have covered faith. We have covered virtue. The third thing mentioned in verse 5 that we consider today, a whole sermon on knowledge. Knowledge. You can see the great importance right from the beginning of our passage that we read in verse 2. Peter describes the grace and the peace multiplied to his hearers in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace that come through knowledge. Do you know that? The next verse we read that we have been granted all things necessary for life and godliness through our knowledge of Christ. As a matter of fact, you'll find that word knowledge, or the verb to know, comes 16 times in this short letter in your English translation. Growing in knowledge is clearly central to our growth in godliness, and it leads us, verse 8, to a fruitful Christian life. If these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see the importance of knowledge. I want you to see the benefits of knowledge. The letter also, by the way, begins as it ends. It has the same note in the closing words uh, to make what's uh, uh, called in rhetoric an inclusio or in, an inclusion, especially in ancient rhetoric, it's used to summarize the main point of something. The letter concludes, as I often conclude our service these days, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? It begins, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. It ends, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is why he is writing these things. Now, if this is his main thrust, then how is it with you? You know, you and I could search the world for knowledge and wisdom and the secret of success. We could study for endless years in our nation's great universities, but we need to go no further than this Bible at our side to find the greatest treasury of knowledge and wisdom in the whole world because this book tells us about our God and Savior we read in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And yet, how often people neglect it. Uh, the man who founded uh, Temple University in Philadelphia had a famous lecture that he gave countless times throughout the United States uh, based on uh, something that he learned during his travels to the East. He told about El Hofred, a wealthy, contented farmer who had wide fields and beautiful orchards. And 
One day, uh, a man told him about the newly discovered wealth in diamonds and how very valuable they are. And the man told the man uh, told El Halfred about how wealthy he would be if he were to own a diamond mine. He says a handful of diamonds could purchase a whole country, and a mine with diamonds. You could place your children upon thrones. Well, after that conversation, Alhafred went to bed discontented. Diamonds. He craved a mine of his own. He hungered for the wealth it would bring, wealth beyond his wildest dreams. In his mind's eye, he could see the gems sparkling in a thousand colors. Why? It would be like possessing the stars of heaven, he thought. And soon... The man was selling his farm and leaving his family in the care of others. And he began a long search across the world that he might purchase a diamond mine. He traveled many weary miles in strange and hostile places and finally, in the last, became poor, broken, and defeated. And in such a depressed condition, one morning, far from home, Alhafred took his own life. One day, the man who had purchased Alhafred's farm from him led his camel into a garden to drink. And as his camel put his nose into the shallow water of the garden brook, the farmer noticed a curious flash of light. And he bent down and pulled a rough black stone from the brook, a stone that reflected all the hues of the rainbow. It was a diamond. And that was the discovery of that famous diamond mine called Golconda, the most significant diamond mine in the history of the world. In other words, had Alhafred remained home and simply dug in his own fields, he would have had literally acres of diamonds, diamonds that to this very day decorate the crown jewels of the great monarchs of the world. That story pictures our modern society with all of its Christian heritage, and yet remains ignorant of the true wealth it possesses, if only it would care to look, and is pursuing and pursuing and pursuing that which is only bringing it death or poverty. From our passage today, I'd like us to consider what it means first to add knowledge to virtue, as the apostle says, and second, to grow specifically in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then I'll conclude with some strong encouragement for you to press on. First, adding knowledge to virtue. Adding knowledge to virtue. Verse 5, our uh, verse that we are using to guide this, these uh, sermons in order, says, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, as we considered last week, and today to virtue Knowledge. Many of you have just started a new school year and are engaged in a serious, concentrated pursuit of knowledge, and I thought I would begin with a word to you. The, the divorce of virtue, in his words, and knowledge, or learning, as I mentioned last week, has been a prominent feature of modernity, one that we must resist, that it results 
have been devastating. For example, one major study published in the Chronicle of Higher Education, I know that only one person here reads that, but it's a major, it's a major publication that uh, people read, believe me, uh, found that 84% of business students reported that they had committed one or more serious incidents of cheating in the past year. 84% versus only 72% of the engineering students. Good job, engineering students. Uh, this is the crisis of secularism, the divorce of virtue from learning. If there is no God, anything is possible. The engineers in Germany might be able to make a great engine, but if they won't be honest with the tests at Volkswagen, What's the point? Job has described a society like this where, quote, they spend their days in wealth and then in a moment go down to the grave. Yet they say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What profit is it, I ask you, to give so much time and attention and even hard-earned money to pay for studies that are only going to make you worse and not better, unless you have joined virtue in the knowledge of God. Daniel prophesied of a time, uh, the time of the end, he calls it, when many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Hardly better words could depict our age. We are busy, busy learning, running to and fro. But where are we going? Knowledge is rapidly increasing. But the knowledge of God at the same time is rapidly decreasing. And what good is all this knowledge if we are forgetting God? Where is it going to lead us? Malcolm, Mug Malcolm Muggeridge pointed out that the most highly educated in Western Europe elected Hitler. And he went on to say, the highest density of universities per acre is to be found in California, need I say more? Apologies to you from California. His words, not mine. Uh, this world is God's world, and any so-called knowledge that is not profoundly mindful of God and God's purposes and God's glory, however intellectually impressive, does not make a human life better. It makes it worse. And this is why Solomon wrote, as Steve reminded us at the beginning, this is how the book of Proverbs begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom, too, it goes on to say later. But it begins... The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. You have to start in the right place. God revealed to Abraham his will in step with his obedience. Uh, until Abraham had gone the, with the first command, God didn't reveal the second step. And it's impossible to get anywhere to grow in true knowledge unless you are also growing in virtue and in the obedience to God. Um, or positively, the psalm says, I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. Knowledge alone tends to make people proud. Knowledge puffs up, wrote the apostle, but love builds up virtue and knowledge together. And Paul writes, though I understand all knowledge, but have not love? I am nothing. Knowledge is worthless 
if it isn't joined with the virtue of love. We know as Christians that these things must be brought together. They belong together. And they support each other. One more old testimony. Bernard of Clairvaux famously said this, there are many who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That's curiosity. There are others who desire to know in order that they themselves may be known. That is vanity. But there are some who seek knowledge in order to edify others. That is love. And all our learning as Christians ought to be marked by selfless, other-focused, God-glorifying love. Virtue is an essential foundation component of growing in knowledge to make us not just better learners and better thinkers, but more Christ-like people. That's obviously true with the historic four cardinal virtues, wisdom, self-control, courage, righteousness, but even those specifically Christian virtues like humility, the Christian virtue of humility helps us become a better learner. We don't assume that we have all the answers. The attitude of humility is the antidote for laziness and apathy, humbly acknowledging our limitations and considering that others have something to teach us. That should be natural for us as Christians, and it will do so in a way that makes us effective in pursuing God's truth. We need to be prepared to abandon what we think we know in the light of God's revealed truth. Be willing to change not only our minds, but also our lives if necessary. But in all these things, I'm saying to you, and especially to you students, that virtue and knowledge need to be put back together. Cultivating virtue is not only something that's good for our souls, but even good for our minds. They are both part of that one self that we are giving to God. And the love of God is going to drive us on in the knowledge of God. Add to virtue knowledge, Peter writes. But it's not knowledge in general, of course, and that brings me to my second point. The emphasis, the great emphasis in this letter, again and again, is to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. At the end of the letter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, the, The knowledge of Christ. Don't be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8. These things are are put together as a strong emphasis. The reason why this letter so strongly, from beginning to end, encourages growth in the knowledge of God, and especially of Jesus Christ, is because false teachers have come into this church. The Church of Asia has been infiltrated by... Effective teachers who are leading people away from Christ. Most of the letter takes up this problem. He begins with this positive approach. But even at the end of chapter 1, he is exhorting his readers. 
You better give yourselves to these scriptures, verse 19, which you will do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I say he'll devote all of chapter 2 to warn about the danger of false teachers. And true knowledge, especially the knowledge of Christ, is going to be the best antidote against the falsehood of these clever teachers. Chapter 2, verse 1. He lays some of his cards on the table now about the problem that he's been addressing all along. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Another way to say this is that the knowledge of God and the interpretation of the Scripture is a matter of life and death. This is how seriously Peter puts it. Or as he closes the letter in 3.15, chapter 3, verse 15. Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, has also in all his epistles, speaking of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see the reason now for the exhortation? We can't believe in an unknown Savior. Now, some people say, wait a minute, it's not what you know, but who you know. Separating the very things that Peter labors to keep together. It's these twisting of the scriptures that it will eventually lead people to deny the Lord. We need to know the truth about Christ if we're going to know the true Christ. Remember those depressing statistics in the beginning of how many people say that they believe in Jesus, a, a Jesus that is someone other than God manifested in the flesh. We need to know the truth about Christ to know the true Christ. Christ is revealed to us in the scriptures supremely, and you cannot separate a man from his words. Now, if somebody says something to you, maybe pick on Dr. Hal for a minute, maybe he says something to me, and I laugh out loud at his words and mock him and make fun of him. But I tell him, actually, I'm not making fun of you. I'm only making fun of your words. You think Buddy's going to be happy with me? No, he will not. The words are the expression 
of a mind and a heart. Words are how we know people. It's by words that a relationship is created and deepened and sustained. You cannot drive a wedge between Christ and the scriptures. And if you try, the wedge will not end up between Christ and the scriptures. The wedge will end up between Christ and you. This error of twisting the scriptures but saying I believe in the I believe in Christ even if his word isn't true. That error came into the church like a flood about a hundred years ago and Alexander Moody Stewart addressed it this way. He wrote, in these days many good and able men are now saying that we are to tr- what we are to trust is not the Bible but Christ. And so they have no scruple in making the Bible one of the least trustworthy of all books. Yet we know nothing of Christ except what we read in the Bible. And when it is discredited, men can have no Christ except by their own imagination. This is the major project that so many branches of the church have undertaken to doubt the word, even as he says, to make it one of the most unreliable of books, and to try to hold on to Christ. And the only Christ that they have left is the Christ that they have imagined. Without knowledge, they have no hold on Christ. And this is the reason, the obvious reason, ultimately, for the collapse of so many parts of the church. There simply is no more fundamental, no more crucial question to answer than this. Who is Jesus Christ? You know, you're working on a problem, you get a sum wrong at the beginning. It doesn't matter how long you continue that calculation. You're going to be wrong. Your result is going to be false. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And he promises that all those who seek him shall find him. Maybe you need to know the Lord. Maybe this is your great need. And what a great change this knowledge brings. How painful it is at first. Meeting with the Holy One causes you to realize, really for the first time, that you are a sinner. It will make you realize how you have held the Lord in contempt and displayed all the fruits of that contempt in your life. That you have not desired him or his ways, but he won't stop there. No, his ultimate goal is that you should come to know God as a father, as Jesus as a great and a faithful redeemer, a kind of growth in grace which comes with growth in knowledge, a growth in grace and knowledge that does not end. The growth that Peter especially singles out here, growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is his strong emphasis. For it is that knowledge especially that we need to live. That is the difference between life and death or destruction, as he puts it.
It is that knowledge that we need to combat the false teaching that swamps our culture and the church today. My second point to you, you need to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the real Christ that you need to know. But in conclusion, I would like to give a, don't get too excited, it's a long conclusion. Uh, in conclusion, I would like to give you an exhortation to, to grow. Uh, children, it's, it's good that you are where you are now, but it's not good for you to stay as you are because healthy children grow. And so it is with all the children of God. I, I say to each one of you, it's not wrong for you to be where you are necessarily. Um, God has blessed the evangelistic ministry, and some of you are just starting out on that route. Some of you are young or young in the Lord. It's not wrong for you to be there, but it is wrong for you to stay there. All of us have much growing to do. Yes, children, adults, you're minister. We are called to grow to the full measure of the stature of Jesus Christ and how important it is. I've been telling you how important it is for you. But I'd like to remind you how important it is for everyone, for, for everyone around you. I'd like to remind you of an uh, um, author that many of you have read, G.I. Williamson, now retired minister in the OPC, um, some years ago, he was uh, called uh, to a new church uh, in the Midwest. And he visited an old member of the church on his deathbed, whom he had not met before. The man's name was Orville. And Williamson went and took his hand and he said, Orville, are you confident that you will be with the Lord when you die? And he said, oh, yes, I, I've lived a good life, and I'm confident that the Lord will accept me. And Williamson said, Orville, how could you ever say such a thing? You've sat under strong preaching for years, I know, and all this time have you been trusting in your own righteousness? You may be dying, man, but I'm going to shake you. That's damnable doctrine. You're a sinner, and you deserve hell and damnation, and your only hope is not your righteousness, but Christ's. You've got to repudiate your own righteousness and cling to the righteousness of Christ through faith in him. And Orville said, oh, that, that, that's right, Pastor. I'm, I'm sorry I said that. I, I should never have said that. I, I am a sinner, and Christ is my only hope. Now, what's the problem here? Was Orville actually all his life a self-deceived hypocrite up to that moment? Almost certainly not. A sincere believer who was going to be with the Lord. What was the problem? The problem was that he had never learned to think clearly about something as basic as the gospel and to be able to articulate it to others. Now you say, that's a shame, but it's not really a tragedy. Well, you know where the tragedy is? The tragedy is Orville's children. 
The tragedy is the people that Orville met every day at work who needed the truth to be saved. What about all the other people in Orville's life? He himself was not clear on the most basic things of Christ, that it was sinners Christ Jesus came into the world to save. And he was not able to speak clearly to them. And so if some non-believing neighbor came to Orville and said exactly the same thing, you know, Orville, I've lived a good life, and I'm confident the Lord will accept me. What do you think that Orville could say? Well, nothing, because that was his own thought about himself. Still just a babe in understanding. Remaining a babe in Christ will have bad results in your life. But with others, it may be fatal. And therefore, what I'm saying to you in my conclusion is it much concerns you to learn to think and express the central truths of our faith in Christ with clarity. And then you'll be able to speak about them to your children, to your neighbors, to your friends and loved ones and co-workers. And you'll be of great assistance to others, fellow believers who are assailed with doubts or opposition. Uh, you'll be able to stop the mouths of people who gainsay. Will your beliefs stand up, I ask you, when you are faced with eloquent people who know the scriptures better than you, who are false teachers, the very teachers that Peter is warning about. And he's saying, not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of the church, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you stand in that trial? Or will you be swept away in the error of the wicked? You know, when the Westminster Assembly finished its work creating for the, all the English-speaking churches a confession of faith and catechisms and so forth to unite the English-speaking church together as one in that grand project. They wanted to commend the work they did to the members of the church, not just to its leaders and scholars, to its people, that they would grow in knowledge and not neglect so they wrote a preface, a preface to their work with which I will conclude, and it goes like this, leaving a few bits out for the space of time we have. They write, the two great pillars upon which the kingdom of Satan is erected and by which it is upheld are ignorance and error. And the first step of our manumission from that spiritual thraldom consists in having our eyes opened and being turned from darkness to light, Acts 26, 18. Give us leave to suggest this double advice. The first concerns heads of families in respect of themselves, that as the Lord has set them in place above the rest of their family, that they should labor in all wisdom and spiritual understanding to be above them also. It's an uncomely sight to behold men in years, babes in knowledge, and how unfit they are to instruct others who need themselves to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God. 
Hebrews 5.12. You search for wisdom as for hidden treasures. It much concerns you in respect of yourselves. Our second advice concerns heads of families in respect of their families. Whatever has been said already. Though it concerns every private Christian who has a soul to look after, yet upon a double account it concerns parents and masters as having themselves and others to look after. Some there are who, because of their ignorance, cannot do so. Others, because of their sluggishness, will not mind this duty. To the former, we propound the method of Joshua, who first began with himself and then was careful of his family. To the latter, that is to those who are only ignorant because of sluggishness. We shall only hint what a dreadful meeting those parents and masters must have at that great day when their children and servants, when all that were under their inspection, shall not only accuse them, but charge their eternal miscarrying upon their score. Never did any age of the church enjoy such choice helps as this of ours. If, therefore, there's any spark of love in you to God, do not be content that any of yours should be ignorant of him whom you so much admire or any haters of him whom you so much love. If there be any compassion to the souls of those that are under your care, if any regard of your being found faithful in the day of Christ, if any respect to future generations, then labor to sow these seeds of knowledge which may grow up in after times, and that you may be faithful herein is the earnest prayer of Thomas Watson, Thomas Manton, Matthew Poole, Ralph Venning, Edward Perkins, etc., 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 and the prayer of David Vance as well. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for such a holy word that is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path and one that has led us indeed to know the only Savior. How important it is that we should grow in such knowledge. We pray, our Father, that you would forgive us for the great neglects that we have made of your scriptures and of all those many ways in which we, be, we may be taught knowledge in these days in all of the busyness of our ordinary lives, amidst all the distractions and diversions, even learning other things, how we have found it easy to neglect those things that are so important in the knowledge of you. Give us, we pray, a renewed zeal and clarity to set our minds and lives aright, to be circumspectly walking as wise, not as fools, for the days are evil, and to understand your will, O Lord. We wish that among us all as we grow together, increasing not only in the grace but also in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, him in whom are hidden all your treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's in him that we pray.